My name is Aubrey Arneson. I am a DGC director, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the DGC podcast, brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada National Directors Division. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional Indigenous lands that we all live and gather on today. Although this talk took place in Toronto, we are all located on traditional ancestral Indigenous lands. We are grateful to the Indigenous peoples who have cared for these lands and waters for thousands of years. Many of us have come as settlers, immigrants, and newcomers in this generation and generations past. We also acknowledge those who came here forcibly, particularly as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. Therefore, we honor and pay tribute to the ancestors of African origin and descent. Today's episode features a trio of directors who screened documentary features at TIFF 2023 all three of which explore the life and work of iconic North American artists. First, Chelsea McMullen, whose documentary Swan Song takes a cinema verite approach to observing the National Ballet of Canada's mounting of Swan Lake, following the corps de ballet and legendary dancer and artistic director, Karen Kane. McMullen is joined by Robert McCallum, who tracks the life and work of another iconic Canadian figure with his film, Mr. Dress Up, the Magic of Make-Believe, a heartfelt documentary about Ernie Coombs, an American who became a beloved children's personality in Canada. And lastly, these two directors are joined by the storied filmmaker Bridget Berman, whose Oscar-winning documentary, Artie Shaw, Time is All You've Got, was given a new restoration at TIFF 2023 after being unavailable for decades. This conversation is led by award-winning DGC director, Lisa Rideout. Please enjoy. Thanks everyone for being here. We have three amazing filmmakers and I'm so pleased to have this conversation. I think it's rare that directors get to sit with each other and talk about craft. So I'd love to just start off with you know, a bit of an elevator pitch or logline for your films. And Rob, we can start with you. I thought we said only yes or no questions <laughs> for this. Uh, yeah, it's Mr. Dress Up, The Magic and Make Believe Chronicles, the origins of the Mr. Dress Up program, which united Canada coast to coast to coast, as well as the personal history of Ernie Coombs and how his life intertwined with the show, as well as shaped the entire Canadian children's landscape. Bridget? It tells the life of and the music of a very, very complex, interesting musician personality, Artie Shaw. So um, if you can catch it, I'm sure it's going to be trying to get distribution again. And so hopefully it will open. My film Swan Song uh, follows Karen Kane um, directing for the first time as her sort of uh, goodbye to the company. Uh, her iconic um, Swan Lake, which was her first role. Um, uh, yeah, it was her iconic role and the first uh, role she danced. Uh, and yeah, so it follows her and the company coming back from COVID and, and mounting this gigantic production of Swan Lake. 
Um, I'd love to hear how you all got connected to your, you know, your subject, the participants in the film and whether you were approached or you approached them. And then also, you know, why you thought you were the ones to tell this story. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was collaborating um, with um, kind of my producer and co-creator, Sean O'Neill. We wanted to do a project that was quite expansive and it was actually, uh, we had the idea to do the series first. So it's also a series that's going to be airing a four part series on CBC. Uh, and we wanted to do something in a more verite mode that like followed an event unfolding. So we actually kind of were like looking for subject matter for a kind of scale of project that we were interested in doing. Um, and then Sean remembered that it was like, yeah, that Karen was supposed to be making this kind of big production of Swan Lake. It was her goodbye to the company. She was retiring. It's her iconic role. And so that was all like all really exciting to us. But then we were like, also, you know, it would be a little bit boring, I think, if it was just kind of like a puff piece about Karen Kane. So we were like, oh, what actually might be interesting is if we follow Karen directing this production for the first time, but also this kind of like new generation of dancers. And it can be this kind of more sprawling multi-character um, uh, yeah, series. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, so we approached the ballet, but that was in like February of 2020 and then like COVID happened. <laughs> um, and we were like, oh, I guess we don't know if anyone will ever make ballets again. <laughs> uh, but we kept talking over the pandemic and we started shooting a bit and then we kind of just waited and shot with them for two years. And when they were ready to come back, we, uh, yeah, we followed them. Bridget, how about you? How did you get connected with Artie? Um, I had interviewed him for my film about Big Spiderbeck, the cornetist who died at age 28 in 1931. And um, I did a long interview with him. And when the Big Spiderbeck went to Filmex, the Los Angeles Film Festival, I'd invited him and one of the critics to come and see the Big Spiderbeck film. And he loved the film. And I knew at that point that I wanted to make a film about Artie Shaw. So when over dinner, he asked me, you know, what I was going to do next, I was ready with my answer. And I said, I'd like to make a film about you, Mr. Shaw. And he took a moment and he said, why? And I knew he was going to ask me that. So I came up with my well <laughs> worked out reasoning and told him and he liked it. And he loved my big Spiderbeck film. So he gave me total access. And I started making my film at that time independently, um, money I raised myself and making the film instead of buying a house. So, oh, wow. <laughs> paid off with an Oscar though. Pardon me? Here you go. Paid off with an paid, Oscar. Paid off. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Houses are overrated, right? Yeah. Well, who well, wants to live somewhere where you can just make a film? <laughs> you know, my entire filmmaking journey has been never asking for permission to do anything and just going out and doing it. Mr. Dress up posed a bit of a different situation. Um, I, like any parent, I was looking for something for my kids to watch that I felt would be wholesome, reflected me and I'll watch what dad used to watch. Usually it never works because if dad likes it, then it's kind of kryptonite. And this instance, even though my kids liked all CG and Paw Patrol and flashy, you know, Zoomer stuff, they sat down and they watched Mr. Dress Up like intently without missing a single beat which is a vastly different show than most of kids entertainment today. It's very patient. It's in the moment. And they were hooked. 
And of course the career hat goes on. It's like, well, where's the documentary on this? Especially since there had been some on Mr. Rogers. Well, I discovered that there was a Kickstarter campaign for someone who had tried to do one by somebody who was not a filmmaker. And I reached out to them and they saw what I had done, which included a lot of pop culture, deep dives and historical retrospectives. And they said, you know what, here's my contact list. Just keep me in the loop. And I took that and I basically, it was a zoom call to the Coombs family. And uh, within that call, somehow I convinced them as a Masters of the Universe collector and DuckTales fan that they should entrust me with their dad's legacy, this cherished Canadian icon, to tell the story, which they've been approached for over 20 years and they kept saying no. Uh, and last night at the world premiere, the Q&A after they said, you know, you're the only filmmaker that never talked to us about money. Everybody else had this commercial pitch on it. And you just said you wanted to make it because you loved it. And we understood the love that you had because it's how we loved our dad. So that, I guess, was the secret recipe for me to get access to the family. And then down the road, once we pitched Amazon and Amazon greenlit it, uh, CBC came on board and they gave us access to the show's archives. And then that was kind of the snowball. Um, I feel like that's a good lead in to you know, kind of all the material that you all had to work with. So talking about the CBC archive, I know that Mr. Dress Up was on the air, I think for 29 years with 4,000 episodes. And I know Chelsea, you shot about 5,000 or 5,500, still a lot, 500 hours of footage. And Bridget, you had, you know, you traveled, you interviewed so many people, you had diaries, you had archive. So I think it's common for a lot of documentaries that you have so much material that you have to dwindle down. So Rob, I'll start with you. How were you able to dwindle that all down into a feature film? And also, did you have access to, you know, the 4,000 episodes from CBC? Well, you know, CBC has a pretty big archive. But the way that archive has been maintained over the years hasn't been exactly kept in huge detail. And you can almost see the regime changes by how the entries are there. Sometimes it's just a single sentence like Mr. Dressup and then the date. You have no idea what's in the episode. Sometimes it's an entire paragraph. Sometimes it's cap locks. It says, Mr. Dressup, dress up. I'm like, well, of course he dresses up. It's Mr. Dressup. <laughs> so there was a bit of guesswork. So they provided us a list. And because there were so many episodes, and I think there's only 1,200 that they had digitized at the time, we just had to go through and pull what was like kind of there. And that was about 300 episodes. Well, we knew that, okay, here's one on environmentalism. Here's one on, you know, community. Here's one on indigenous people. Here's one on, you know, bullying. Here's one on, you know, uh, gender ambiguity and why it's okay for Casey to like dolls, no matter what. We pulled all those, what we thought were highlights. And then we had to go through all the home video footage we had. And then we had, I think, 60 interviews as well that were all about two hours each to pull all that stuff. So very thankful we had a team of researchers to help identify that and kind of suss out what was gold and what wasn't and when we had to go back to go to the Mr. Dress Up Dresses Up episodes to see if there was anything there and then kind of weed our way through it and kind of put the puzzle pieces together. Thankfully, it was we knew the structure. We just needed to find the core examples to help highlight it when people were identifying them. Bridget, what about you? It took me three and a half years to make this film again because I started all on my own. And I did have help from the Canada Council, from the Ontario Arts Council, and I had a, one private investor. So I had some startup money. And, um, you know, I started, of course, with the subject matter. I decided to do his interview first, so I would have that in the can. And that was like three days of nonstop talking. Now, 
Artie Shaw can be a very difficult man. And so it wasn't easy always to get through the interview. And, you know, sometimes he got a little nervous because he likes to be in control. And when you are being interviewed and you get caught up in stories, you slip out of control. So that made him incredibly nervous at times, but I had to kind of, you know, calm him down. But he loved my film about Big, so that made a big difference. I had his trust. So after I finished my interviewing, I had like loads and loads and loads of film and even more tape. He told me he felt like his head had been vacuumed, literally, <laughs> you know, at the end. And then I started to really find all my footage. I knew the people who had the collectors, who had a lot of his footage. I had worked with them on my big film. They loved also what I did. And they made their works and their, their material available to me. I found a lot through Adi Shaw, through the band. One of the band bassists had filmed on 8mm a lot of wonderful, funny footage, the band on a plane, Artie clowning around in a central park and, you know, just on and on and on. And so I had this delicious, wonderful footage that I could put in aside from Artie Shaw playing and, and some of which was a little more difficult to clear. Um, but we got all that done. The music was expensive, difficult to clear again. We had to do all that. So, um, and again, it was really reworking and eventually I worked with another editor who came in and was a sound editor and helped me finish the film. So it took about two and a half years to until just the editing itself and shaping the film. And I always begin with a long, my first rough cut, I call it an assembly actually. It was close to four hours long. So double the time, a little more than double the time of the film. And then I take my time. I get to know my footage really, really well. And I just bring it down. I bring it down. I bring it down. And I have people that I show it to. And of course, I had the remarkable Don Haig, who is no longer with us, who was really a mentor for so many Canadian filmmakers. It was just incredible. And I took him with me to the Academy Awards because I owed him big time. He was there for me always. And... Um, yeah, so he, I pulled him up on stage as well, and he was really thrilled. So, but he he would watch the entire assembly rough cut and would leave me notes. And I really loved, he was an incredible editor, filmmaker, and I would read those notes. And I took them very seriously. And it was good to feel the somebody else viewing it and how they took in the material. So... Once I finished the film and I looked back at the notes, I just about took every one of his notes and took them into consideration, worked with them to make the film. So it is really great if you can have somebody like who just understands film inside out to have with you on that kind of a journey. And I believe in showing my films ahead of time before they're finished, just to get a sense of the audience. Is it working? Is it not working? Um, that's really important to me. And uh, yeah, and so finally I finished it and it went around to festivals and then down to LA. Thank you. And Oprah Winfrey gave me the award. Oh, incredible. <laughs> and, and a car? Did she give you a car as well? Um, I'll let you ask her for that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Chelsea, so you had 500 hours of footage and I know I read as well in your press kit that you were in the edit and after four months, scrapped and started over. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, 
bringing up all my trauma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So we really wanted, like I said, to like really in a more organic verite mode, follow an event and the arc of an event unfolding and multiple characters. Um, in this case, it was like ballet dancers um, sort of from across the country, a company who were playing different roles and were sort of in the hierarchy of ballet in different places. Um, so, so yeah, uh, it was like started at obviously in production. We had to like set up a system that worked because it was like so much footage that we were going to have to ingest. And we were shooting with um, like Alexa minis. So it was like, you know, like big files and um, just processing that much. Like our, we had to sort of like, we couldn't even work with a post house because no post house would take it on because it was too much work. Uh, so we kind of had to create like a bespoke post system and our like, um, uh, kind of like, um, post supervisor who managed it all was like, this is more than like an X-Men movie <laughs> in terms of like file size, um, in terms of how much, um, yeah, data we shot. Um, so, so yeah, we had, uh, like, we were tried to be sort of as organized as possible because we knew we were no matter what, we were going to be so overwhelmed, um, by the footage. Um, so we created the system of, um, we would shoot 10 to 12 hours a day. And this was sort of starting from day one to re of rehearsal and then going all the way up until opening night. Um, and we were sort of rolling continuously, um, for the day and we had two, two cameras. And then as we got further along, we added a third camera as more was happening and there's more characters. And then like opening night, uh, we had like nine or something. Um, but yeah. And so we had a team of story editors. So what we would do is I would be shooting in the field and taking really like detailed notes. We'd have a story meeting at the end of every day and we'd sort of go through the notes um, and write them out for our story editors. Our footage would get ingested. That'd be taken to our story editors and they would log it. And we used a kind of two prong system that was like, um, we kind of drew on one of our story editors. We pulled from factual. She'd worked on big brother and she introduced us to this like hashtag system. <laughs> so like, uh, you log footage, but it's like hashtag ouch, hashtag ha ha ha, hashtag Karen's vision, hashtag pain. Yeah. Um, hashtag like court of ballet. So we had this hashtag system and then the system I have always used which I learned from like watching a panel of Frederick Wiseman uh, was like, he uses a Michelin star system. So it's like three, two, one stars. Um, so we would do both. So scenes are story editors who we worked for two weeks to like train. So we'd watch footage with them and talk about what would you star this three, two, one. Um, so we did like the star system and then they would also log um, hashtags. So then we had this giant log for the editors and those would get, would get put into timelines. Um, and then, um, so they were sort of doing that in real time so that like, like we wouldn't be so far ahead um, or sort of, sorry, so far behind by the time we started the edit. And then from there, um, and they were sort of checking that against our notes in the field. And then from there, yeah, we started to do paper edits um, and, uh, and I think like really the, uh, the, the reason like that we needed to sort of take a step back and sort of like press the lead on the edit is that we just realized with so much footage, 
the like we were sort of allowing the paper edits just to be a bit loose and we just realized like no they have to be um like so precise because to get too far off course uh and we just would be getting lost in the footage and it would lose the sort of like crux of the scene and we just had to realize that like um more had to happen in terms of um yeah our story edits and being really really precise uh, everything was also transcribed. And so then we ended up creating like a new system of um, of story editing that was even more precise um, and uh, and kind of started again. And as we sort of built those scenes um, with with these kind of new new approach and, and these new story edits, we sort of were getting closer to the sort of language. And I think the other thing we we realized is that um, Nobody knows anything about ballet, actually, and I didn't either. But um, you, then I did know too much about ballet, <laughs> and and I was really trying to hold on to the verite ness of it. And I and I think we did, but we also realized like we really needed to help people understand the world because everything's so subtle that if you don't understand the stakes and what's happening in like the world itself you can't understand what what's happening within the scenes themselves. Um, so we sort of realized like, oh, we need, there's more sort of explaining to do. So these scenes like land for people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think um, people that don't make documentaries sometimes just think we kind of put the camera up and we're ready to go. And so it's nice to hear about all the planning and how meticulous you were in logging it. So that's awesome. Um, I just want to return to something that Bridget said about showing your cuts to potentially people that are in your films. And I think something that, that are in my film, not no. that people that are in, no, no, oh, okay. No. Test screen. Never, ever, okay. ever, ever. Okay. <laughs> so that that's completely understood. It's not a good way to go. Okay. So that, that's good. That's a good lead into my question, um, which is you all have said that you see documentary filmmaking as a collaborative process with the people that are in the films. So I am curious what that tangibly means. So, you know, I was I was curious if anyone shows cuts to people that are in it just to kind of either get their input or get an OK um, if they're involved at all with the pre-planning. Just so what does collaboration mean to all of you? We can start with you, Rob. OK, um, well, I actually I did show participants in my film the cut because it was very important that the son and daughter of Rudy Coombs understood what we were doing. I had their implicit trust from the beginning, but it, it had to be clear that they felt comfortable with this going out. That didn't mean we were going to change it, but they earned that right to see it before it went out there. So they wouldn't be surprised in an audience, um, which is different than making them a collaborator. It's just keeping them on the inside loop where we still have final creative control, but it was an important distinction that we set up to help gain that trust, to go through it. They knew that they were going to be on the inside so that when they saw it, there would be conversations. There wouldn't necessarily be changes, but there would always be an opportunity to discuss it. Uh, and I think that's healthy, especially when you're talking about some of these legends that you can have an open dialogue and it isn't brick walls of my way versus your way, especially with certain topics. So for, for me, it's a very communal experience. I, I get very awkward when it says, you know, a film by Rob McCallum, because there's so many people that make that film happen, right? I mean, we all love our editors because of all the hours they put in and help us 
make the decisions that we get to make. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be able to make those decisions, right? It's communal. Everything is about communal. So the film by thing is kind of an illusion in my, in my opinion, because I couldn't do without my collaborators. And sometimes those collaborators extend to the people that are in the film. Thank you. They had that. So Bridget, you don't show uh, the participants the cuts, but how do you see collaboration? Um, well, first of all, the reason I, especially, <clears throat> especially Artie Shaw, I, um, I knew and talked with him at great length about his life. And he trusted me as a, as a filmmaker. And, um, and I would check in when I needed to get, understand certain things, dates, whatever, always checked it with him. But when it came to editing the film, and like I said, I started, I'm an editor first. That's how I trained. And I started to edit the film. And um, in fact, he had come up with his girlfriend at one point at Film Arts, and he wanted to show her the Bix film. And I kind of teased him. I said, look, in there, all those cans, that's you. It's in there. And he said, oh, yeah, that's nice. And he walked on. He never even wanted to see... a bit of it, you know, so it's really great when you have that trust. However, um, at the end, and also, um, he was married eight times and I interviewed his eighth wife, Evelyn Keys, who speaks incredibly, she's amazing. She speaks very openly about their relationship and he was a difficult man. And I did not tell him that I had interviewed her at all. But when I showed him the film for the first time um, and were anything wrong, I would have fixed it at that moment. And he, everything was correct for him. And he saw that and he said, oh, you got Evelyn, you know, but he, he liked, he liked, you know, and again, it was fantastic. I mean, I was, and I also taped his response. So I had on tape that he loved the film. And so, you know, but, um, on another, on a more recent film of mine, um, on, about Gordon Pinsent. Now that film I did show to Gordon Pinsent. Um, my late husband and I showed it to him and the, and the, his agent. And just to also ensure that everything was correct. And it was like the final cut. And, um, so yeah. And, um, and otherwise when I made my film about Hugh Hefner, um, he didn't even want to see it. He had no interest in seeing it. Again, I had the total trust and I made the film. So, and the film I'm working on now, it'll be the same thing. And I have the complete trust. So that's kind of great when you have that body of work behind you, that they know you are a researcher who really takes things, research very, very seriously, getting everything right very, very seriously. And I double, triple check everything. Um, and you know, and because I'm a believer that if one thing is wrong or if I see one thing wrong in a film, the film has lost my trust. Just that's it. Um, anyway, so, and the collaboration for me begins when I have people who are not involved in the film or who I've worked with, they, I want them to come and see it. I can, you know, I show it to them in a theater at the Royal Cinema and I get their response. I write it down. I'm really interested in how it comes across to an audience. Again, the audience to me is very, very important. And I keep that audience in mind as I make the film. And I'm very careful about the rhythm of the film and, you know, not letting it drag and picking it up and, you know, and just 
keeping it going. So yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a real collaboration and, uh, but yet it's also, you drive the film through and, um, and when you have to kind of like, you don't get money from the usual sources, it becomes more difficult and, um, it's, but in the end it's incredibly, I wouldn't want to do anything else ever. I love working in this business. Thank you. The positive note. Chelsea, how about you? What has collaboration meant to you on this film? Yeah, I mean, for me, honestly, I do see it as a collaboration with your subjects. For me, it's kind of like a little bit film and context dependent. Um, and there's also kind of like the power dynamics at play. Um, so I think kind of based on that, um, and who the subject is or what the subject matter is, it's a sort of like, yeah, I sort of shift how I sort of work with the subject. Um, but for this film, uh, specifically we had, uh, total creative control that was important, especially like working with an institution like the National Ballet. We sort of uh, had a written agreement that we would have um, total control, creative control. Um, and uh, and they were great about that. Um, there was some ethical stuff that um, I think we had to, um, yeah, tailor to the specific situations. Um, one around um, one of the dancers had, um, yeah, some mental health um, stuff that, um, we wanted to show her and get her sign off, um, sort of ethically, uh, um, uh, of those scenes, um, before, um, before locking picture and another dancer, um, sort of revealed in the process of making the project that, um, she had an injury, but, um, for her to feel comfortable speaking about it, um, we had an agreement that she would be able to watch those scenes before we locked picture um, and give feedback. And we agreed to that because, um, you know, as a dancer talking about injuries, you're putting yourself in like an extremely vulnerable position. And we felt ethically like that was important. I, ultimately, they both were very happy with what we'd done. And um, I think just around the injury stuff, very minimal changes um and and around um uh the other the other uh issue uh nothing but uh yeah i don't know i feel like in documentary just for myself it's um it's uh it's pretty gray and uh, i think um there's no one sort of like i think every filmmaker has their own sort of internal compass and code of ethic um it's not standardized, but you have to do, yeah, make the films in the way that you think best, um, you know, represent what the story you're trying to tell. So you have a slew of Canadian celebrities and celebrities in your film, like the Bare Naked Ladies, you have Biff Naked, you have Michael J. Fox um, and many others. So, you know, I think if someone was thinking about making a documentary film, it would feel a little bit daunting to get celebrities uh, in their film. So how did you go about it? How did you go about first deciding who should be in the film and then convincing them to do interviews with you? Uh, well, we made lists, you know, let's make, uh, in the case of Mr. Dressup, you know, 
He's on the air from mid sixties and through syndication into the mid two thousands. So who are all the notable Canadian voices, men, women, non-binary, every ethnicity, every region, and just, you know, every entertainment musician, actor, like everything, make a list. And then we hired a casting agent, reach out to them because they have established relationships with this and that costs money, of course. Uh, see how it comes back. Some people we just hit up on Instagram. Hey, we're doing this. Interested? Yep. What time? And I mean, look, this is Mr. Dress Up. I've done other films where it was flat. No, no matter how much money and time we spent getting these people. In this case, it was only an issue of scheduling when somebody didn't choose to appear. Everybody said yes, because it was just a universal subject matter that people wanted to discuss, that had been waiting to talk about this because that show was so integral to who all these people were. And for the most part, the reason that they all ended up in these careers in the arts. So we just got really lucky that we had a subject matter that was so universally warm and, and loved and the schedules lined up with when we were looking to capture it. And a pro casting director helped us connect all those dots. Awesome, thank you. So Chelsea, the reviews for your film all talk about how stunning it is. And so, which I attest to, I've seen it. It's a really beautiful film. And so I'm curious how you approached it aesthetically. Did you go in with an idea of how you want it to visually look? Or was it after observing the ballet for a little bit that that came to be? Um, no, I went in with a pretty um, strong sort of aesthetic of like how I wanted to approach it. Um, I wanted it to feel, I mean, I just, I wanted the film and the series to feel like very raw and real. Um, and so that once we sort of go through the journey with all these dancers and the company and we arrive on stage for the production, then that I wanted to be the opposite. It's like, I wanted everyone to see the work and the rigor and the pain and then I want to see people to see like w what it was all for. And so that I wanted it to be completely different. I wanted it to be, you know, this kind of spectacle. Um, so really nailing that and not having it feel like a live capture of dance <laughs> um, was like very important to me. Um, and, you know, something that I've been, I think, just developing um, how to translate live performance to cinema in uh, sort of across a lot of my work, um, because I've always kind of found that the experience of watching something live um, is very rarely captured um, the feeling of it cinematically. So it's always been sort of an interesting challenge for me to sort of be like, how do you represent what it feels like to see something live? So that was a really fun and interesting challenge on, on uh, this film. And uh, yeah, so I, I had a, a very sort of like um, pretty strong aesthetic uh, idea of how I'd approach it. Thank you. Um, a question for all of you. I know uh, making documentaries, there's usually many moments where directors want to quit or just walk away. And I'm curious if you could talk about, you know, a specific challenge or a moment where you were like, I can't do this anymore. And then how you were able to overcome it. So maybe Chelsea, you can start us off. 
Lisa, you already brought up my <laughs> challenge. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll think of another one. Obviously, like access with the ballet was like a really big challenge. It's like just organically in sort of like, uh, yeah, in its like inherent, like at its core, it's it's a sort of closed off art form. And I think there's a reason why I like, I mean, there's like, a lot of stuff about ballet. Um, but I think that's why there's so much like horror around it and the black swan of it all. And it's because it sort of has this kind of air of mystery and it feels so closed off. So really, really pushing for that access, um, was definitely a challenge and something that we sort of had to push every single day <laughs> with the company. Um, and push sort of farther and farther and farther and being like, no, we, cause we had talked about kind of a complete access, but actually getting that is like another thing. Um, so we are just reminding them every single day that we, what we had discussed and, uh, and needing more and wanting more. And, um, uh, so that was definitely another, another challenge. And then even like, you know, the opening night of it all, getting access backstage and all this stuff and being yelled at by a million stage managers and, uh, and, uh, even, you know, getting too close to the dancers, um, which, you know, was like also about us doing our due diligence to build trust. Like in the first week we were like, so worried. I was like, Oh God, this like footage looks like shit. Like Honestly, like, because we couldn't get close to the dancers because they were like, get the fuck away, which was like fine. Like, because obviously, who are we? And we're like, got, have these big cameras and they're dancing. Um, and uh, like, we wanted them to wear microphones. We had these like, like microphones that are like the size of like a credit card. They're like, and like for NBA players or whatever. Like, so we had these microphones that we wanted them to wear, but like dancers, like anything on their body is like, a, you know, another thing. And like, they don't like, that's like, they don't like feeling any sort of appendages on them. That's why they wear like skin tight leotards. So like, um, even just like, yeah, getting them to wear mics and, um, and yeah. So like at first it was just so challenging. And also like, it's just like, everything's about like, it's such a rigid culture. So everything's like, they can never be late. So like if we were at all slowing them down, like that was like a big issue. So like all these things were things we were like trying to adapt to. So the first, honestly, you guys, the, the, we were like, I don't know, we might, <laughs> this might have been a bad idea. The first two weeks we were just like watching these rushes every day and we were just like, oh, it's just like not coming through. And it's so, we feel so at a distance. And then just like slowly, it was sort of through the rigor and repetition, which, you know, we hoped would be what would happen of like, um, like just eventually like the dancers just started like, you know, obviously we built, um, like relationships and connections with them. And then like, and our whole team, like our amazing sound team. And so we'd like now, so then they start to like walk in rehearsal with like their arms up. So they're ready to get mic'd and they can mic themselves really quickly. And then like, we got closer because like our cinematographers learned the choreography. So they were getting in their way because they knew where they'd go next. And that was like about building trust and connection and telling them we're paying attention. We're, you know, we're here with you. This is like, we're trying to capture the best version of this. And I think it's such a rigorous um, art form. And when they saw us bringing our rigor to in service of representing them, that's when they're, that's when 
the footage started looking beautiful. And yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely a challenge. Bridget, what about you? Did you have a moment on the film where, you know, you've made over 200 documentaries? So I'm sure there's been many moments. But is there one that stands out in terms of a challenge? Well, the Audi Shaw film, of course, getting a lot of the archival aside from the um, home movies, getting, clearing that, finding it, clearing it. Um, and when you only have limited funds, that becomes extremely difficult. And um, the second, and clearing the music. And the second real amazing challenge was, and, you know, I, there were many things I didn't know yet at that time when I made that film. And we traveled to Spain because Ardisha lived in Spain for six years with Evelyn Keys. And um, we landed in Spain and did not have a carnet. So suddenly we were told we can't come into the country. And um, there we were. And I mean, <laughs> my cameraman, Jim Aquila, you know, he stayed at the airport with all the gear. And I just, I, I, I said, I've got to speak to somebody, but we've got to get in. And so they took me to a travel agent who then got in touch with somebody who worked um, downtown in the government. And so they sent me there and I took a cab, didn't know where I was, couldn't speak Spanish, got there. And this person, you know, kind of interviewed me and he said, can anybody speak for you in Canada? I said, yes, Don Haig, you know, but it was very early in the morning, but Don Haig gets up very early in the morning. So thankfully he answered the phone, told them, yes, we were legit. And um, so he let us, he kind of got our, us permission. And I asked him and I said, why did you do that? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful very much, but what made you help us? And he said, he, he said, I have a daughter your age. And if she was ever in a position like that, I want there to be somebody to help her. And, you know, so back we, I went in the cab, not speaking Spanish to the airport and we got through, but there we almost lost, you know, we were there, but we weren't there. So, but then we got our footage. So it was great. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Rob? Yeah. I had two more, two moments that were, ah, I'm going to quit because the first, and they both happened before. Uh, things really kicked off. The first was that crisis of career faith. Am I doing the thing I should be doing? Anybody had that here where we shouldn't, we don't know whether we should be directors. Should we be directing documentaries and narratives? And uh, I had a call with a very smart woman named Annie Bradley. She said, Rob, what's wrong with you? You always, you know, follow your passion. You managed to write your own ticket. I told her I wanted to do dress up before I had access. She said, yeah, do that. That's good for you. Just do it. And then it's like, okay, take a deep breath because every project is a giant mountain to climb, but Annie's smarter than I am. So I listened to her. And then the next crisis of faith was I had shot a year and a half, basically development interviews and 30 of them and spent over $60,000 of my own money before I had any funding or anybody on board. And we had done some initial pitches when the pandemic hit. I put up our Facebook page, had, you know, 10,000 followers in a week because everybody loves Mr. Dress Up. Marble Media got in contact. They wanted to be partner. Hawkeye Pictures wanted a partner. Down our pitch deck, we had some pitches. One month, two months, three months, six months is going by. And it's like, don't have any money. This has got to go. We had a call with Amazon and the initial pitch was good. 
but we still hadn't heard back if they wanted to go forward under what conditions. And I basically told my producing partners, it's like, look, I'm going to have to drive for Instacart unless we figure out a way to get this going. Christmas was three weeks away. I'm dead serious. I put out resumes for every minimum wage job I could find on Indeed. A week later, Amazon sets a call for Thanksgiving and they said, we want to do this. Uh, we approve your budget. Let's get the lawyers to deal with the paperwork. And we were off to the races. That leads nicely into my next question, which is um, the Doc Organization of Canada. They put out a report this year called Doc Mentality, um, which basically outlined that the documentary film industry is having a mental health crisis. And they advocated for having things like therapy in your budget, adding that as a line item. So I'm just curious, like you said, all these films are a slog. They're hard. They're long. What you all do in terms of taking care of yourselves to have it be a sustainable career, whether that's rituals, whether it's the people that you surround yourself with making the film, how are you able to have these careers in such a hard industry? Who wants to start? Bridget, you want to start? Oh my goodness. Um, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing I do is I, I like to work with young people. And so I do workshops with the young kids in high school and uh, five-day workshops where I help them to make films. And I love doing that. And I get paid by the Ontario Arts Council and I get paid by the school system. So it's, it just gives me a sense of security that I have something um, while I'm trying to also raise money and find money in my later films. Um, and so it's, and, and you just don't know when it's going to start. Now, the film I'm working on now, it was really difficult because I was supposed to start filming and, um, in New York and everything was ready. And I was in a car accident, major serious. And, uh, I was in the hospital. I couldn't film. I, I was lucky to be alive. Um, anyway, so that canceled a long time, then COVID happened. And thankfully the person who I'm making the film about again, really wanted to work with me and I uh, had, I had great trust from him. So now, now we're shooting. So now it's on a roll and I'm, I feel again, incredibly grateful. Um, and you know, this whole thing of don't give up. I, I'm a great believer in that. Having gone through so many films, it, there are always moments where you, oh, I'm not going to get the money and, I'm, and I can't do this and I won't get permission and da, 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 da. And it is difficult, but you just don't give up. You just have that persistence that you keep going no matter what. And what sustains me then are my friends who help me, who are there my garden. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but in many ways, friendship keeps me going. My husband did, but then I lost him. So it's friends now. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Chelsea, what about you? Yeah, I, uh, right before, like, I think it was like three weeks before, like, kind of COVID really hit. Um, or we, I sort of remember the moment where I was like, okay, this is going to be um, a bigger thing than I first thought. Um, uh, and I won't be working for a really long time. Um, 
I I had spent like the, a couple of years like really working a lot, a lot of TV. Uh, I was also trying to finish a film and I started to just feel like a real burnout. And uh, and so I I had like my first kind of in-person therapy session. And yeah. And then I was like, oh, God, thank God I started. Then the pand- <laughs> then the pandemic kind of like uh kind of really landed so I only had one in-person therapy session and then we switched to zoom but um over over the course of you know the my time of kind of not working during the pandemic thank you sir um I did like a lot of therapy and um and then as I sort of started this was kind of my first project that I started to do coming out of the the pandemic and um I sort of continued with it and you know my therapist knows everything about this project uh and yeah and was like uh, I found it so useful to have somebody to talk to um who was not in film but about what I was going through through the process and you know this was project was so large in scale it's the hardest thing I've ever done and I think I literally like I don't know if I would have been able to do it if I didn't I just like thank god I started therapy um so yeah, for me, that was a real support. Um, and, uh, I got rescue dogs <laughs> who are super traumatized, but I love them so much. I'm obsessed with them. Uh, and, but they're super like reactive to both dogs and people. Um, but honestly I was like, and my therapist told me, she was like, you like uh, sort of that's your subconscious, like telling you something. Cause I needed something to ground me that wasn't work. And so I actually find so like, you know, working with them for like the last few years as something that takes me outside of this project. And I think, you know, for your garden or whatever it is for me, it's like my dog and is this thing that like they rely on me. It's so like it has my sort of full attention, but it's like not work. And it's like something that gives me like, yeah, a lot of like, yeah, it's something, you know, I love them really deeply. So it's like. Therapy and a couple of traumatized <laughs> rescue dogs is my nice. secret to nice. success. Yeah. <laughs> and I know we are um, we're a few minutes over, so Rob will have you wrap up and yeah, give it's you know last real, piece real of simple. It's just playtime every day. Define it how you want. For me, being creative is playtime. Whether it's the project that I'm currently working on to pay the bills or another one that's up and coming or one that's wrapping up. It's all about play and just the creative synapses in my brain. If I can do that just for one hour a day, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, that's enough to get me through anything. But that's me. And I can identify that, but it took me a long time to figure out what I need to be happy when I go to sleep. Thank you so much for joining us for this great chat. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at DGC Talent on Instagram and Facebook. And if you are looking to hire a director, you can access an amazing resource, directors.ca, where you'll find a director with the perfect skill set to match your project. Special thanks to technical producer Giacomo Beltrami and producer Hans Engel. Take care and talk to you soon on the next episode.